Hey, welcome to Potomac Kills. I'm glad you've joined us this morning. This is our sixth week meeting all over Northern Virginia as a church distributed. We're blessed to be able to meet this way. We've tried our best to make this worship service meaningful, and I hope it has been. So before I start, please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, and listen carefully as I read our scripture passage for today. Mark 9, verses 14 to 29. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we need it. Thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You've brought us to this amazing gospel to learn more about your son, Jesus. We ask you this morning to give us the grace to believe and not to doubt. Life in a coronavirus world makes it harder to believe every day, and we don't expect tomorrow will be any easier. We live in a time of great doubt, and we find it hard to have faith when we see so much suffering around us. We need Jesus. We need the faith that comes from seeing the risen Savior. So help us to see Jesus in your word this morning. Help us to see the glory of God in the miracle of faith this morning. And so we pray, speak through the Gospel of Mark, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. One woman wrote last year about the first time she realized her life was riddled with doubts. 
It happened when her two-year-old daughter tumbled down a 15-step staircase, and she cried out, Oh God, as any mother would. And she wrote, My spirit sprung to prayer with cat-like reflexes as I watched my two-year-old daughter tumble down this 15-step staircase. I stood helpless as her little body hurled towards the hardwood floor. And then she stood up without a scratch, but my soul didn't. In that moment, I was never more aware of the wound that had been festering for months. That wound was doubt. I had been experiencing doubt about God's existence and the Christianity that I believed to be true my whole life. But until that moment, I didn't realize how deeply that doubt had wrapped itself around my mind. To the casual observer, my daughter fell. I prayed she was okay. But for the first time in my life, I wasn't so sure it was divine intervention. For the first time, I felt foolish for praying. I felt silly for crying out to God in that desperate moment. It was terrifying to realize the faith that had once been my identity now seemed more like a child's fairy tale than the explanation of reality. For me, doubt was an entirely new concept. Growing up, I'd watch God's power at work in people's lives. In my life, I knew God was real. I knew Jesus died for my sins, was resurrected, and coming again. And I knew the Bible was his word, and I couldn't be convinced otherwise. I was active in youth group. I went on mission trips. I emerged as a trusted leader among my peers. I was the kid who no one would have dreamed would doubt her faith. I was the kid no one worried about, the one who would be just fine. But now in my early 30s, I wasn't fine. I had just spent four months enduring the skepticism and intellectual attack of an agnostic pastor who had invited me to a study group at his church, a pastor who had won my respect and trust and who dismantled my faith one belief at a time. By God's grace and unfathomable mercy to me, my faith was rebuilt. But during my time of doubt, I suffered from an all too common misunderstanding about what faith is. I thought doubt and faith were opposites, that if I questioned what I believed, I'd somehow be a failure in God's eyes. However, this definition of faith has more in common with how atheists understand faith than how the Bible defines it. Atheist Richard Dawkins defines religious faith as blind. And in a debate with John Lennox, he said, we only need to use the word faith when there isn't any evidence at all. But in the Bible, faith means trust, not blind belief. We put, uh, all of us, put our trust in various things every day. Every time we drive over a bridge, we trust it's going to hold up like it has so many times before. We trust not because we have 100% proof, but because we have good evidence the bridge won't collapse. You see, doubt isn't the opposite of faith. Unbelief is the opposite of faith. As Tim Keller writes in his book, Reason for God, a faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or too indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if 
Uh, she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be dis discarded after long reflection. And according to Keller, the strongest form of faith is the one that has wrestled through doubts. The Bible's full of people whose doubt led them to greater faith. Today we see one of those doubters who comes to Jesus, and we're going to see what happens. But since we've been going out of order in the Gospel of Mark over the last three weeks, let's take a step back and remind ourselves what's going on by looking at the biblical and historical setting. Once again, the setting for this passage is fascinating. One of the things that attracts me to the miracle accounts in the Gospels is they focus on Jesus and his work for our salvation. Can't think of anything more important for us than this, particularly at this time, to take our eyes off the world, off of ourselves, even off our own faith, so that we can focus them on Christ. In the miracles we find that Jesus does the work needed to deliver us from weakness and condemnation, from danger and sickness, from death, and from the grip of the devil. We don't have the power to save ourselves, much less other people. But the miracles point us to our only hope, the one who can and does save us. Another thing the miracles instruct us on is how Christianity works. They bring alive a biblical portrait of our own condition. We are the one that's pictured by the lepers and the paralytics, the sick and the dead and the demon-possessed. And in the miracles, we see Jesus in action. We're shown his compassion to heal and to save, and most of all, his ability to heal and to save. And we see here that Jesus is both willing and able to heal us and to save us. This morning's passage in Mark 9 is another miracle, and it's not given to impress us, but to instruct us. This miracle occurs right after Jesus' transfiguration. After Peter's great confession, he takes three disciples up the mountain. He's revealed to them in all his heavenly glory. And with him were Moses and Elijah. And in Luke's account, it says, Luke 9, they were glorious to see. And they were speaking of how he was about to fulfill God's plan by dying in Jerusalem. Their topic was the cross as God's plan to be fulfilled by Jesus. Peter, James, and John worshiped in awe. They heard a voice from heaven declare, Mark 9, verse 7, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. The disciples have had a mountaintop experience. I mean, they've literally had a mountaintop experience. In fact, I suppose this is where the phrase mountaintop experience comes from. Luke tells us that the miracle our passage is concerned with begins, Luke 9.37, the next day after they had come down the mountain. So they've left the glory of the mountaintop for the valley, back to the world, so to speak. And just as Jesus has left heaven to be born into this world, so now he leaves his heavenly glory and descends into a huge crowd of people. And as soon as they come off the mountain, they're plunged into confusion and evil. There's a demon and problems and challenges and people are arguing. There are scribes in verse 14. They're arguing. We don't know what they're arguing about. There's disciples. They're trying to cast out a demon. It's not working. In other words, everything's a mess. They're surrounded by evil. Everybody's confused. They don't have the ability to handle their challenges. So they come off this mountain and immediately they're plunged into this chaotic situation. 
Now this is a way for Mark to tell us something. It's very important. The mountaintop experiences happen once in a while and they're valuable. But basically life is a journey to the cross. Notice what Jesus says earlier in Mark 9, verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Essentially, he says, don't tell anybody about this until the resurrection. Why? Because until the resurrection, who would believe it? So the transfiguration is a foretaste of the resurrection, a foretaste of the second coming, but just a foretaste. It's an episode. It just happens. However, life is a journey to the cross, this long journey to Jerusalem where the Son of Man is going to suffer and die. Now, this isn't just a way for Mark to say this is true of Jesus, that Jesus had this mountaintop experience, that Jesus experiences the love of God that fortifies him for that long journey to the cross. And I'm sure that's true. But what Jesus is trying to say to his disciples, and this is true for all of us, this is the lesson, is that life is a long journey and Jesus says in the Gospel of John, in this world you will have tribulation. He wants us to know in this world we are on that journey. We are going to continually struggle with challenges that are beyond us. The Father in our story has a life of continually struggling with challenges that are beyond him. And so he has his doubts. And today we see this doubter come to Jesus and we see how Jesus responds to him in mercy. So let's dive in and take a look at this miracle, which is given in response to the most fundamental of prayers, short and to the point, starting with Jesus finding out when the disciples tried to heal this boy, they were unable to do so. And so now this father is faced with the challenge of faith, the challenge of faith, verses 14 through 19. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. Immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and they ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Now, I'm going to have to use your imagination again. But I want you to put yourself in this father's place. Try to understand what his life is like. His boy lies sleeping, curled up in the covers in the shadow of the dying light of a small oil lamp. The father runs his hand over the boy's head, gently stroking his hair. And as he does, tears slowly slide down his face. Tears for the trade the boy will never learn. Tears for the wife he will never love. Tears for the children that he'll never look at as they lie sleeping in their beds. Satan has robbed his son of all these things. The father's role as a parent has been reduced to that of a caretaker. He too has been robbed. He's been robbed of the simple joys of parenthood, robbed of all the dreams and aspirations that fathers have for their sons, robbed of little boy noises, of childish 
uh, questions, of playful latter, of father and son talks, and anxious questions haunt his mind. What will happen to him when his mother and I die? Who will take him then? Who will feed him and look after him? And his heart sinks because he already knows the answer to those questions. No one. No one wants a deaf mute prone to violent seizures. And the boy looks so peaceful, lying snug in his bed, but his life is anything but. The seizures that come upon him are sporadic and sudden. When they attack, he's thrown into this frothing fit, grinding his teeth, foaming at the mouth like a rabid animal. When the seizures fade away, the boy finds himself encircled by worried eyes. And as he gets up, the people back away and scold him for being out in the street. Understandably, he's a child who's always off by himself, a lonely island surrounded by silence and the stares of others. The neighborhood kids are warned to stay away from him. It's another robbery. His playmates are stolen along with his childhood. His life's been picked clean of anything of value. And he stands looking like some old decrepit building, vacant, vandalized, slated for demolition. Around every corner lurks the potential for destruction. A cruel spirit lies in wait for him like a bully waiting to pounce on a kid coming home from school. It sneaks up on the boy, jumps him from behind, and mashes his face into the dirt, all the while delighting in the tyranny. This is our adversary, the devil. This is who he is and all his cowardice and cruelty. This is his way to push and to shove and to bully. Like a ravenous lion, the devil roams about seeking whom he may devour seeking someone he can get his paws on and sink his teeth into. And he preys on the weak, the innocent, the defenseless, savagely, viciously. As a lion stalks other animals, Satan singles out the youngest, the most vulnerable, and ruthlessly runs him down. So when the father hears that Jesus is in town, he hopes that this Redeemer can somehow bring his son back from Satan's clutches. He falls on his knees and clasps his hands in a desperate plea. He begs as only a parent in deep pain can. And when he arrives, he discovers that Jesus is off with a few of his disciples having a mountaintop experience. So he turns to the only people available, but sadly he discovers, at least in this case and on this day, that Jesus' followers are powerless disciples. Now one of the great challenges for those who follow Christ is unbelief. Before we get, into answer, uh, get around to answer the prayer of the Father, we have to first see that Jesus overcomes the unbelief of those around him. The disciples who were left in the valley when Jesus went up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, they've already tried to cast the demon out of this boy, but they couldn't. And that's the immediate cause of the problem that Jesus confronts uh, on his return from the Mount of Transfiguration. The crowd's watching. His disciples are supposed to be able to drive out demons, but they failed. And because their ministry is supposed to be an extension of Jesus' ministry, we see that his authorities come into question. Because of their failure, the crowd is wondering if Jesus isn't a failure too. Maybe he's fake too. And we're meant to see this tension as everyone looks to Jesus to see what he's going to do now. And as usual, Jesus does the unexpected. We see him cry out, verse 19, 
O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And we need to be clear here that Jesus was referring to the disciples there, although I doubt the crowd was any less stubborn or faithless. The disciples who had stayed behind tried to heal this boy, but they couldn't, evidently because of their unbelief. Now, don't think that Jesus bears any less sorrow for us as his heart is wounded by our unbelief. He's given us faith to know that we're his, and yet we're so often unwilling to exercise that faith. And so how does Jesus overcome this lack of faith? How long he cries? Well, it's the rest of Mark's gospel that gives us the answer, as long as it takes. Jesus overcomes our unbelief by his patient love and his long-suffering grace. As the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 1, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. With complete assurance, Paul wants you to know that God will continue his work in you until it's finally finished. And to see how this plays out, we have to turn to the next part of our passage for today, where we hear the prayer of faith. The prayer of faith. We had the challenge of faith, and now the prayer of faith, starting at verse 20. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And at this moment in time, this is the father's last shot at helping his son. He's been let down by the disciples and his shaking faith has been further shaken by their failure to heal his son. And he just doesn't know anymore if Jesus is really the answer. After all, his disciples weren't much help, were they? But what choice does he have? And he just has a little faith and a lot of doubt. And the boy is rolling around on the ground, foaming at the mouth. The drama between the crowd and the disciples, between Jesus and the Father is rolling on above him. Now, we already know something about Jesus that the Father doesn't know. We've seen Jesus in the earlier miracle accounts appear in the Gospels, uh, and we've seen him uh, heal people and do some amazing things. And Mark's already told us several times in his Gospel that Jesus has power over the demons, and they're terrified of him. But the Father isn't aware of this cosmic drama being played out around him. He's just like any other frightened parent of a sick kid. He's bewildered, helpless, desperate. Just like you and I would be if this were our son rolling around on the ground. He's brought his son to Jesus' disciples, hoping for help. But their failure has caused him to lose most of his hope. And now we see the Father's words to Jesus clearly show he's not expecting much. Verse 22, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. We're looking at a human life about to be obliterated by an evil power. And we're made aware that the Father is now doubtful of Jesus' ability to do anything about it. And the outcome hangs here on this point. Heaven and earth hold their breath. 
The demon's already deployed his weapons. The boy is thrashing about on the ground in terrifying fashion. And Jesus, we already know, can vanquish this evil power with a mere word. But he delays. The disciples have failed. The scribes look on with scorn. The crowd's being entertained by this first century reality show. And no one knows what to expect as Jesus repeats the Father's words back to him. If you can. If you can. Really. And then he says, All things are possible for one who believes. And in a split second, hope returns. The father reaches out and grasps with all his might at the giver of life and hope and health. And he puts himself into Jesus' hands. And in the words that have been called the greatest cry of faith in the entire Bible, he places himself at the mercy of God. And one of the great prayers of the Bible we read, Mark 9, 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Note that while Jesus was lamenting the disciples' unbelief, the minuscule faith of the father is rewarded because he's admitted his lack of faith. He's asked for help. He said, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus answers that very simple, but very profound, very honest prayer. You see, the Father's cry is our cry. Lord, we do believe. Help our unbelief. And a confession like that's not a symptom of the disease. It's the first sign of the cure. The author, Henry Drummond, uh, said there's a difference between unbelief and doubt. Doubt is can't believe. Unbelief is won't believe. Doubt is honest. Unbelief is obstinate. Doubt is looking for light. Unbelief is content with the darkness. And so I believe, help my unbelief, is a wonderful prayer, the kind that Jesus loves to answer. And he answers this prayer with the power of faith, starting at verse 25, the power of faith. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute, mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. <clears throat> and when he entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So that's the scene. That's what's happened. With tears streaking down his face, this father has looked into Jesus' eyes and appealed to him, I believe. Help my unbelief. so Jesus acts. He casts out the demon and he heals the boy. And there's a tense moment. The father and the crowd stare at the boy. He's lying motionless on the ground. 
It's a moment begging for belief. Not just what's going to happen next, but what do you believe? And with his eyes on the crowd, Jesus reaches down, grabs the boy's hand, and pulls him to his feet. And the crowd breathes this collective sigh of relief at this incredible uprooting of evil that it's wrapped itself around the boy's life. Jesus hands the boy over to the emotional embrace of his father. And we see the Redeemer returns the stolen goods to their rightful owner. To a tearful father, he gives back his son. And to his son, he gives back his childhood. And in this passage, Jesus has come down from the mountain to encounter a force that must be overcome. He defeats Satan and the powers of darkness. And Jesus' ministry in the world requires him to face battle and and defeat the devil. This pattern started at his baptism. The voice from heaven pronounced him God's son. And then immediately afterwards, he was tempted by the devil. And now the pattern is repeated after the transfiguration. The voice from heaven pronounces him God's son, and then he faces and defeats Satan and the powers of darkness. And here we see it's the devil's work to enslave and distort people. People made in God's image, but twisted into the devil's image. Now the symptoms of the boy here represent uh, or resemble a severe form of epilepsy. The boy convulses and foams at the mouth. He falls to the ground. But there's far more to that. It's not mere epilepsy, if you could say such a thing. Because Mark also tells us that he's deaf and mute. And he adds that the demon's thrown him into fire or water to kill him. It's an all-too-vivid picture of what the devil's doing to people in this world. We're not up against a silly man in a red costume casting little darts our way. The devil's power works within us, in our hearts, in our minds, leading to self-destruction. They scar and destroy men and women made to bear God's image in this world. So don't think you're lucky just to avoid a fate simply because you don't have the symptoms this boy has. Many people, most people, are firmly in the grip of possession stronger than this. Their minds have been captured by demonic forces seen in everyday events and everyday life, powers of materialism, ambition, sexuality, and just plain old selfishness. And if that describes you in any way, then God's image is being just as efficiently warped as it was in this boy's life. And your destruction is even more terrible because of the ease with which it's accomplished and the lack of effort it takes from Satan. (coughs) Now, I know that's harsh language, but I also know it's true. But know this, know this. The battle described in this passage, (coughs) excuse me, the battle described in this passage is between Jesus and the devil. We're not direct participants in this fight. We're its object. We don't give military aid to Jesus. 
uh, nor does he need it. Our work is to stand firm. And in the words of uh, Moses in Exodus 14, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. And so we look at the rescue, verse 27. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And in the parallel passage in Luke 9, it says, Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. The emphasis here is on the ease with which Jesus succeeds. Up to now, the demon's power over the boy has gone unchallenged. But also unchallenged is Christ's power over the demon. And with a word of rebuke, the devil's servant is chased from the field of battle, which forces us to consider the object of faith. What are the disciples supposed to learn from this event? Perhaps this miracle reveals the task Jesus came to perform. Dying on the cross is also the source of victory over all that opposes him. Jesus came in the world. He came down from the Mount of Transfiguration to confront the devil in unbelief. So that forces us to ask, how much do you have to believe to be a bona fide Christian? What is a believer? What's an unbeliever? Which are you? And don't jump to conclusions too quickly. Just because you're watching a sermon on the Sunday after Easter doesn't necessarily mean that any of us are people of great faith. My guess that a lot of us this morning are hanging on by the thinnest of threads. And to us, Jesus would say, all things are possible for one who believes. Believes what? Believes that all things are possible? Believes in faith healing? Believes in belief? No, none of those. The faith which is brought forth by Jesus' dialogue with the Father is not assenting to some theological proposition. It's not agreeing with some religious principle. It's not acquiescing to some spiritual program. It's a radical trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, Romans 4.17. The one who creates faith where there is no faith. The man asked Jesus, starting at verse 22, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. That is, I'm trying, but I'm full of doubts. And then Jesus heals the man's son. And this is good news through Jesus we see that we don't need perfect righteousness. We just need repentant helplessness. Jesus could have told the man, I'm the glory of God in human form. Purify your heart. Confess your sins. Get rid of your doubts and your double-mindedness. And once you've surrendered to me totally and come before me with a pure heart, then you can ask for the healing you need. But Jesus doesn't say that. The Father says, I'm not faithful. I'm riddled with doubts. I can't muster the strength necessary to meet these challenges. Please help me. And that's saving faith, faith in Jesus instead of faith in yourself. Perfect righteousness is impossible. It's impossible for me, for you, for all of us. 
And if you wait for that, you will never, ever come into the presence of God. You have to admit you're not righteous. You have to admit that you need help. And only when you can say that is when you'll be finally approaching God in faith. I love the words Mark used to describe the healing of the boy. Verse 27 says, Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. That's an Easter affirmation. Mark is telling us that even in the case where God's power is most likely to be thwarted, the case of death itself, that's the point at which the power of God, proven in the resurrection, manifests itself in those who believe. Because it's in the hard times that God comes to you. When you're pleading with God to do something, and you honestly appeal to him with a broken and halting voice, I believe, help my unbelief. And the only question is whether or not you believe in him, even if it's just a little bit. In fact, our lives are often defined by unbelief. But Jesus comes anyways, and he touches us and heals us and saves us. And that's grace because we're getting what we don't deserve. Mark brings us that same message of grace over and over again. And now we see it with a father who can't stop crying as he watches his little boy run and jump and play outside. Because it's all of grace from beginning to end. That's the message. Mark tells the story of how Jesus revealed that grace, died to provide it, rose again to bestow it, and will return to establish its presence over all of creation. <coughs> And we, we have to show what that grace looks like. And we have to start by bringing that grace to those among us, to some who are watching this this morning, who are afraid to admit they don't have the faith they pretend to have. Who are afraid to admit they don't have the faith they pretend to have. You see, you are the people of God. And through the telling of this story, Jesus Christ has arranged a meeting between him and you this Sunday after Easter. It's out of my hands. It's in his hands. He's not waiting for you to figure it all out. He's not holding back to see if you have enough faith. He's coming right to you. Even if you're lying on the ground or foaming at the mouth in order to draw out whatever small amount of faith you might have left. Are you a believer or an unbeliever? No matter how great your doubts, no matter how inadequate your emotions, no matter how often you feel you're just going through the motions, you wouldn't be watching this morning if you didn't have some amount of faith, however small that faith may be. And that's the Holy Spirit of Christ already at work within you. And it's enough. In 1 John 5, the Apostle John reminds us, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And so now we have the infinite privilege of praying, I believe, help my unbelief. Well knowing that when we pray that prayer, in the fullness of time, Jesus Christ will speak the word, that will banish the enemy forever. See this story in Mark 9. 
is not so much about the healing of a little boy or the pleas of a desperate father as it is about sinners in need of a Savior. Someone is able to use what little faith we have and do amazing, miraculous, Easter-like things with it. So with whatever faith you have, you should pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have given us the King. In this passage, we see your Son. This morning, we ask you to increase our faith. Take what little faith we have and make it grow. Make it effective. Make it as real as the garbage man coming on Tuesday. Give us the courage to face everything in our life that's out of our control. And that's everything. And pray, I believe. Help my unbelief. Make your son the object of our faith so that we will know and believe that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen.